Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Sam Anwar Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking to Nee Parks. I'm Nee Ayukwe Parks. I am a writer, dreamer, editor, Ghanaian, lover of kenke and similar fermented foods, and especially groundnut soup. Aha! Okay, wonderful. So, Nee, this exhibition is all about poetry. So how would you describe your work, your poetry? I think my poetry is largely exploration. As Black people in a capitalist world, there's so many things unexplained. If you know your history, you're always finding new things out because there are things that are deliberately hidden and there are structures that are put in place to hold you in a particular position. And I think a lot of my work, as much as it admires the beauty of the world, it, there's a lot of inquiry around Indigenous knowledge that's been suppressed and that kind of thing. So the work is exploratory, but always fun because I like to laugh. And there's always a lot of food in my writing too. Yes, <laughs> that's wonderful. Okay, so Nee, can you tell us when you knew yourself to be a poet? It's a really... Interesting question. When I was two years old, this is the story goes, I hugged one of my aunts for about 30 seconds and I stood back and I asked her if she liked it. And I think maybe that was the time I became a poet because poets are always looking for feedback. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I would say growing up, people always would say, you have a really interesting way of phrasing things. And I've always had a sensitivity to the beauty of the music of language, regardless of what the language was. So I grew up pretty much bilingual. So my parents spoke Ghan with me at home. And because I was born in England, outside of the home and on TV, there was English. But I was always acutely aware of, you know, what it was possible to do with words, funny rhymes. I would make myself laugh when I was as young as, you know, three, about how words sounded. And then I also had a a lisp. So my father used to tease me about that. (laughs) Well, he used to have a lisp. So he knew the words that you couldn't say if you had a lisp. Ah. And so he would challenge me to say them and So, you know, there was always this playing with the sound of language that was always a part of my life. And I think there was a kind of formal recognition of being a poet when my father read something I'd been writing and said, oh, you're writing poetry. And and at that point, I started to keep the stuff that I'd been writing. I mean, the reason I was writing in the first place was partly because of my father, because I, I had quite a terrible temper as a kid and I was always getting into fights. And his ruse for getting me to stop fighting all the time was to tell me that if I ever felt like I wanted to fight, he wanted me to stop and count to 10 and write something down about it. And if I still wanted to fight, then he would support me 100%. And soon I found that I just liked writing more because I could, I mean, I could make people into frogs and tadpoles and mosquitoes and crush them without ever having to actually fight them. And so, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Marvelous. That was probably the formal um, recognition. This would have been around the time I was 10 years old when he saw, you know, something I was writing. 
And so I have work saved from around that age, so quite early. A, smart dad, and B, that you immediately saw the power you had in the words and what you could do there with those words was possibly more powerful than you could do with your fists. Um, So, me, you've talked about your work as a poet. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work as an editor? Uh, Yes. So I started working as an editor quite early in secondary school. I worked a little bit on school magazine. And then when I left, I helped to start a national student magazine in Ghana. So I was working as an editor then. Yeah. And so the pen's always been important for me as a way of not just marking things that can be corrected, but also putting ideas in the margins. So sometimes somebody's written something and and it makes you think, oh, maybe they could go a little deeper over there and I I write the notes over there. But I think beyond that, when I came to England and got involved in poetry, I started a poetry magazine and then later started editing poets. And I run a publishing company called Fliptide Publishing. What I've come to find in that role is that it's vitally important to have within the gatekeeper role people who are not of the dominant culture in the West, because there's so much that passes as ordinary, which is actually abusive. And so that's why, even though I have come to find some success as a writer, I've never stopped editing, because I think it's really important for people to question things like somebody just seeing two African people walking down the street and saying that they've seen lions. You know, I'm going to ask you why. So don't assume that a cliche is strong. I want you to give me the reason why something works or something should be there. And that role is really, really important to me. So I keep working as an editor. Also, because there are writers whose work is being turned down by mainstream publishing as not being strong enough, simply because people don't understand the context and the history and the value of the perspectives that they're coming with. And if there are no editors from the Caribbean, from Asia, from minoritized cultures within the West. To see that and to bring it to the fore, then some of the greatest works that are being produced right now will never come to our attention. So if you were there during the sessions, you would have noticed when I came for my photography, there was a couple of writers who came and I had edited them before. And these are people who are recognized as really brilliant writers now. But when I edited them, nobody wanted to publish them, even though they were already good. I didn't do anything to make their work amazing. What I did was publish it and validate it. And I think that is the role that I really value as an editor. And sometimes to the compromise of my own work, even though I'm learning to find the balance because I also need to write. Otherwise, I become mean. Ooh, we don't want mean. We don't want mean. (laughs) Well, we know from your dad's ruse that writing is absolutely what stops you from fighting. Yes. But you said something in there about perspective, which is my golden word, which is the need for different perspectives in that editorial process, because if they are not there, certain other things can get in. I'm not sure the word that you used, but then you later used cliches and that sense of the need to question. Could you just tell me a little bit more about that, about what you mean by that? When you're in a culture where your reality is minoritized what people tend to do is they have shortcuts for generalizing about your people. And those ways of generalizing, which you can call cliches, become markers of authenticity for your culture when actually they're not. And so what it starts to do is 
to make people who don't fit those cliches feel like they're not being authentic and they start to play up to things. So you start to get a homogenization of a culture which is forced upon people, minoritized people, by the mainstream culture. Unless you have people in place who can say, yeah, I know a black pilot. Why would that be unusual? I mean, something as trivial as that. And, you know, Munya Chawawa has just done a TikTok video about the carnival and these policemen who start dancing, right? And the comments beneath it are really interesting because everyone's saying, why do the policemen always feel like they have to pop and lock to prove that they understand black culture, right? (laughs) And that's an example of it. You know, it's like, okay, if it's black people, they're going to like it if I pop and lock, that kind of thing. And we all know, because we have large families, there are Black people who don't like really spicy food. <laughs> so it, it's, it's stuff like that. It's incredibly frustrating for people from the Caribbean, for instance, the way they can all get lumped together. And I know, certainly, my Barbadian cousins, they hate it because Barbados does not like that thing where you, you lump them with any other island. <laughs> it's like, no. So it's little things, but it's a myriad things. And it's very difficult to encapsulate in you know in a in a phrase or two but it's significant and this is why the other thing that I do is try to encourage more people to work as editors you know we we had an intern here last year who is now I've taken on us for one day as a digital editor couldn't afford to pay her full time but at least I'm keeping her within the system so at some point you know she will transition into a more substantial role whether it's with us or with another publisher. But I think it's always really important to make sure that these perspectives are reflected within the gatekeeping roles. Wonderful. Thank you. I I love your use of the term shortcut. One of the things I also do is I do train in unconscious bias. And one of the things I do explain is that a stereotype is a shortcut that your brain uses. But when you take a shortcut, there's so much that you miss. And what I'm hearing from you, you need the other perspectives to allow those things to come through. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a really interesting, well, a very London analogy. You know, you can get a bus going from South Kensington to King's Cross. There'll be a bus that's direct and there's one that's local. Now, the bus that's direct, for most people, that's it. They just want to get to King's Cross. For somebody who lives on the local route, if you use that, you're really hurting them. And that's the same kind of injury that stereotypes can do. And in the shortcut, you're putting the person completely off where they need to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you can also do that for your people. So basically, you know, there's that sense that this is who we are. This is what we do. This is, and it's like, actually, it's much broader than that. We are much wider than that. We are as broad and as wide and as big and as deep as any other culture. So thank you. Um, It's really, really good to hear to hear that. So we've asked you to donate two objects to the Museum of Colour, but before we get on to those objects, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship to museums and how you feel about being in a museum now yourself? I would say I didn't have much of a relationship to museums until I became a parent. I didn't feel like there were spaces where I necessarily wanted to go. So if I went to a museum, it was probably on a school trip. And I think that was probably once. And that was even in Ghana. But, you know, as a parent, I've tried to take my kids into museums. And, and I think there's something about being a parent that makes you try things that you wouldn't have tried before. I want my children to have a certain level of exposure to the world. And sometimes 
you can't explain things in abstracts. You have to take people to places. And I think that as a parent, I have felt more confident because I would be somebody shielded rather than seeking to engage with the museum myself. I'm somebody shielded. I'm somebody's guide. And I think I would be more apprehensive. I still am probably more apprehensive when I'm going just by myself. Having said that, I was writer in residence at the VNA in 2005. So I think maybe that was uh, the first step towards not feeling as intimidated or as alienated from museums as I felt in the past. Okay. How do you feel about being in a museum yourself as a poet in the present? I mean, I'm incredibly honoured to be asked and I feel it's important. One of the things that I remember from Ghana, I used to go to the Pan-African Writers Association offices, which is in the middle of Accra, close to a place we call Kaukudi Junction. So roughly, I mean, if anybody knows Accra, it's in an area called Roman Ridge, um, which is close to Nima and Kotobabi, which are, you know, centers of migration and trading. But within that building, Atukwe Okai, who was the president of the Pan-African Writers Association, had a room and a staircase that had photographs of Black writers from around the world, from Kamar Brathwaite to even people who wrote speeches, Angela Davis, they were all on the walls. And I think going to that office always made me feel like writing wasn't something I couldn't attain. And I didn't feel like it was something that Black people didn't do because there was so much proof on those walls. And it was writers writing in all kinds of languages. And I never thought that was important until much later on when I would just do things as though, you know, I was meant to do them. And people would say, well, why didn't you think you couldn't do it? And ultimately, I was revisiting Atukweokaim just shortly before he died a few years ago. And I went to the office and I just realized how I had memorized, you know, some of the faces on there. And these were probably my companions in writing, making me feel like, hey, you can do this. You're meant to be here. There's a whole wall of us. There's a whole room and staircase of us, you know. So I would call that probably the precursor to this Museum of Colour. And I love that this is going to be digital and accessible around the world because it will give other children, other dreamers, regardless of whether they're children or not, the visual verification or even impetus or belief that they can actually be part of something extraordinary. Because it's just the sheer numbers. Sometimes people feel like maybe there's one person. So maybe that person has to be extraordinary before they can do it, right? But when you see so many people and so many people at such a high level, then you think, actually, you know what? This might be my calling. This might be my heritage and I can do it. I have the right. And if I have the desire and belief, then I should pursue it. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's spot on in terms of some of my thinking and trying to create this space. So thank you. So let's look at your donations. So tell us about your first donation, if you can describe it, because even though people will be able to see a photograph of it, they might not have it in front of them now. Um, And then tell us what it means to you and why you want to share it. I donated two objects, a pen, which is a Stedler 430 blue pen, and a bit of paper on which I'd written some poetry. I donated these two objects because I think that they're expressive of my practice, which is both as a writer and an editor. And in both forms of practice, I use pens extensively. 
It's less usual as a writer because a lot of writers don't write longhand these days, but I wrote longhand right through school. And I feel most confident when I'm creating writing longhand. And so it gives me freedom. You know, when I'm moving about sitting in the back of a bus, I can write. And as an editor, I use that to draw arrows, even with my own work, which I also, you know, edit before I send to my actual editor. You know, so the paper I sent, there was two poems. It was a two-sided paper. And both of those poems ended up in my latest collection with People Tree Press the Gaze. And I donated it to show that perfection or a final published thing, because I don't believe in perfection. A final published thing doesn't just happen. So on the paper, you will see that I've crossed certain words out or I've written in the margins. So I wanted it to be something that was static, but living. Static, but living. So yes, you can see where you've crossed things out and where you've amended and so forth. Okay, so it's the living nature of the document, but also the way that you've created it. And it's interesting that you mentioned about the pen and, you know, being able to write. And we're such a digital world now and society now, but your pen gives you freedom to write wherever you happen to be, as long as you can find a scrap of paper. That's beautiful. So let's move on to then your poem because that was the third donation. So can you tell us which poem you've selected to donate and when it was published? So the poem that I'm donating was on one side of that paper, and it's just the first two sections of that poem. It's called Caress. poem was published in The Gaze, which was published by People Tree Press in November 2020, in the middle of lockdown. So, yes, it's a curious book because it arrived under the cover of COVID, (laughs) but it lives and breathes. And so I'm going to read from it. If I speak often of gardening and days slow rise behind the creep of morning sun, it is because somewhere along my thigh lies the memory of a tomato plant's jagged leaf, nibbling at my skin at dawn, your hand steady at my shoulder, your voice gentle in my ear, pointing out tiny buds that will turn to flower, then fruit. I hold the faded watering can, its silver sharp against my grip, dark as yours as we wade between beds of onion and kale, lettuce both green and red, aubergines that stand high as my chest, and all the while time unfurls. Birds bicker in the guava tree behind us. Doors crack open. The light spreads, its luster caressing your tight curls as you pull a radish clean out of the soil. Shake it and bite through its red skin to the crunch of its white flesh, passing one half to me. We speak nothing, Okonfo, of origins, but I know you planted all these seeds and taught me the tender and the harsh the art of nurturing them. And this is all I needed to know of love, ever. A morning before sun, the beauty of bud, flower, and fruit, a father's voice with birdsong, the tart white secrets in a radish's heart. Thank you to Knee Parks for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. 
To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Kakembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samanwar Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms, where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect Due. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects, based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening.